Lord, we thank you because you're good and kind and merciful and gracious. And Lord, we know that because you sent Jesus down to earth, God himself come down for us to redeem us and reconcile us, to make us right with you so that we could be in relationship with you. Father, we thank you because you prayed for us. Jesus prayed for us. Jesus continues to pray for us. Lord, in this morning, I pray, I beg you, Father, that your word would come alive in us, that we would understand it, Father, that it would transform us and change us and make us more like your son, Jesus. We pray, God, by the authority that you gave Jesus, we pray this and we ask for this in your name. Amen. Amen. We're in chapter 17 of John. If you've been with us the last couple weeks, uh, we did verses 1 to 6 uh, two weeks ago, and we did 7 to 19 last week. Uh, Chapter 17 is the longest prayer that we have, the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. What makes it so remarkable is that he prays, he prays this prayer not long before going to the cross. He's on his way to the cross. He's just entered Jerusalem uh, a couple chapters ago to the cheers and praise of the crowds and uh, all the while knowing uh, that these same people are going to be shouting for his crucifixion in a couple days. He knows that his hour has finally come and he repeats that a couple times in the previous chapters in the chapters leading up to chapter 17. And as he anticipates the cross, as he prepares to face the most difficult moment uh, of his own life, the betrayal of Judas, the betrayal of the disciples who flee and abandon him, his arrest, his trial, uh, and most importantly, his crucifixion, as he faces the cross, he has three big concerns. The glory of the Father, the preservation of the disciples, spoke about that last week, and the unity of all future believers. That's where we're in today. The unity of all future believers. That's verses 20 to 26. So we're looking at the final section of this prayer where Jesus leaps into the future now and he prays for everyone, for all those who would come to believe as a result of the faithful preaching and teaching of the apostles. In other words, Jesus prays for you and I. Verses 20 to 26 is Jesus praying for all believers. He's praying for Centerview Church. Everyone who follows Jesus in the 21st century is personally prayed for by Jesus in this verse. And we get a glimpse of what Jesus is doing right now at the right hand of the Father. Jesus intercedes. His job right now is to intercede on our behalf at the right hand of the Father. We read this in Romans 8.34, if you want to flip there. Romans 8.34, it says, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25, we read the same thing. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them, for us. Jesus prayed for us heading to Calvary and he prays for us today at the right hand of the Father. And this is our ultimate resource for mission work. 
It's that Jesus advocated for us and continues to advocate for us. He continues to advocate for us in heaven. In Luke, in, in chapter 22, <clears throat> verse 31, uh, Jesus tells the disciples that Satan demanded to have them. Now, he's talking to Peter, but it's in the plural, and so he's talking to the disciples. Satan wanted, demanded to have them, to sift them, quote, like wheat. <clears throat> To the relief of the disciples, Jesus continues and he says, but I have prayed for you all that your faith might not fail. See, in, in ancient times, you'd put grain in a, in a sieve, in a strainer, and you'd shake it violently. And what would happen is that all of the impurities stuck to the grain would fall and you'd be left with the precious kernels of wheat and grain. What falls, in other words, is trash, it's impurities. Uh, to be thrown away and thrown out. And so what Jesus is saying is that Satan demands to shake the disciples so hard and so violently that they would be crushed and disintegrated and fall through the strainer, separated from God. This is Satan's demand. The accuser demands this of the disciples. To Satan... You and I are impurities to be shaken and sifted and separated from God. He accuses us before the Father. Look at their sin. Look at what they do. Shaking us violently to separate us. But listen to what God says through the prophet Amos in chapter 9. Listen to this. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nation as one shakes grain with a sieve. But no pebble of grain shall fall to the earth. What a precious truth. The same violent shaking that Satan wants to destroy us with is the same shaking that God uses to purify his church and to make us holy. What a contrast of opinions. Both Satan and God use the same analogy. To Satan were the impurities in the trash. That's what he sees to be obliterated. God sees us as precious. To God, he uses it to purify us. He uses the trials and the adversity of life to purify us, to make us more like him. What a joyful truth that in Christ, you and I are the precious kernels that remain after sifting. And what prevents us from being sifted out is the prayers of Jesus. That's what Jesus tells the disciples. I prayed for you. We're left standing because Jesus prays for us. Jesus advocates for us. In the same passage in Luke, now Jesus directs his, his words to Peter. And he says, when you've turned again, when you've repented, go and strengthen your brothers. Mm -hmm. 
Jesus anticipates our failures and our flaws and he uses them to purify us. Satan accuses us. Jesus is so hopeful. He says, after you've fallen and repented and turned, go and strengthen your brothers. See, the disciples are rocked and rattled at the crucifixion. They, they run, they flee, they, <laughs> they hide. But because Jesus prays, they're not given over to Satan. They're preserved more than that. They're able to go and strengthen the brothers. They're filled with the Holy Spirit to go and to do God's work. And how do we come to know the good news? It's because Jesus prayed for the disciples and the early church documented the words of Jesus, documented the acts of Jesus, and we have this today because of their faithfulness. And we have this because Jesus prayed for them. That is why they were able to be faithful. The, the, the gifts we exercise, the prayers that we offer, the gospel we share, the service that we give are all made possible because Jesus prays. We confidently go about our mission that Jesus gives us <clears throat> because Jesus prays. The, the world is unbelieving and the world is rebellious. And despite that sad reality, Jesus guarantees the mission's success. People will be reached. People will be saved. Throughout history, we see that this is true. But even now, we know and believe that it is true. God will have and will save people. He guarantees us and assures us of it. Jesus assumes success in this passage. Read with me. Open up your Bibles in verse 20. I know it's up there, but look in your Bibles. Verse 20, what does it say? I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. There's no doubt in Jesus' prayer. He doesn't vacillate. We have absolutely no control over people's hearts and we don't need to because Jesus prays and assures us it's going to happen they will believe not might come to believe but will believe our job is to execute the mission faithfully go to the nations baptize them in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit and teach them that's our job I thought I was going to lose my voice last night <clears throat> surprised it hasn't gone yet if you uh, if you see my voice crack feel free to feel free to chuckle I won't take it the wrong way I've been asked before well <clears throat> if if God is gonna save people then why do we pray what's the point he's gonna save them anyways and the short answer is because God tells us to God ordains the ends and the means God ordains the salvation of his people, but he also ordains how they will come to salvation. God isn't just sovereign over the final result. He's sovereign over the very method and the process that the result is achieved. Power is a, uh, prayer is a part of the process. And we pray because God has asked us to pray. That is how salvation comes to the world. God predestined that Jesus would save us from the beginning of time, but the plan still had to be executed. Jesus still had full responsibility to be obedient to the point of death. 
Jesus prays for the preservation of the disciples, but the apostles, the disciples still have to fight temptation and sin. The apostles are assured of success, but they still have to preach and teach and plant churches. The work still needs to be done. God's plan to gather his people includes prayer. And it assumes the faithfulness of his church to do what he's asked us to do, which is pray and preach. To not participate, then, is disobedience. Disobedience for which we will be held accountable for. So when God tells us to preach, we preach. When he asks us to be holy, we are holy. And we shun away sin. When he asks us to be generous, we give. When he asks us to forgive, we forgive. When he asks us to pray, we pray. We pray because God tells us to, because he knows it's good for us. It transforms and it changes us. As we pray, God accomplishes his purposes purposes in the world, but also in us. And if Jesus prayed, how much more do we need to pray? Now, what does Jesus pray for? (coughs) Excuse me. The first thing he asks for is unity. He mentions it several times in the text. Verse 21. That they may all be one just as the Father, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Notice that every time in this text that Jesus talks about unity, he references the unity of the Trinity. Go back to verse 21, look at it there. Uh, that they may all be one just as you and I are one. That they may be one even as we are one. Verse 22, verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. The reference point is the Trinity. This is uh, not just a chapter 17 thing. This is a theme in John. In chapter 14, he says, believe in me, I am in the Father and the Father is in me and He says again in the same chapter, verse 20, on that day, uh, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Chapter 15, the exact same idea, expressed a little bit differently with using the word abide. Chapter 16, same thing. Jesus talks about going to the Father. Unity is a central theme here. It's a spiritual unity that he's talking about, and it's like the unity that exists in the Trinity, There is a love between the Father and the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Son. They share the same purpose in the Trinity. There's no conflict of interest or priorities within the Trinity. There's mutual glorification. The Son glorifies the Father. The Father glorifies the Son. There is a holiness in the Trinity. There is a hatred of sin in the Trinity. There's a shared power and authority in the Trinity. So when Jesus says that he wants us to be one, 
in the same way that the Father and the Son are one, he's saying that he wants us to have all those things in common with them. The first unity that Jesus, the most important unity that Jesus is talking about here is our unity with the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about us yet. He's talking about us in him. We're to have a shared purpose, a desire to glorify God, a shared love for holiness and hatred for sin, to live in power and authority by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus asks primarily that our unity would reflect that of the Trinity. It's a spiritual union, and it's the richest type of union. It transcends time and geography and culture and gender and race and class. The the unity created by the Trinity joins churches from different centuries and ages. Because our unity is spiritual, we're not just joined to the church of today, we're joined to the church of ages past. Because they abide in Christ as we abide in Christ. We're not bound together here because we all live in the GTA. We're united because we live in Christ. We're not bound together because we're Jamaican or Nigerian or Portuguese. We're united here because we're citizens of heaven primarily, first and foremost. We're not here. What joins us together is not our common interests. What joins us together is our common love for Jesus. We have a lot of immigrants in our church. Let me tell you this. Before you ever step foot in this country, you and I were united already. We are united because we put our faith and deposit our faith in Jesus Christ. Can you be united now, then, to Christ? Can you be united to God without faith in Jesus? Absolutely not. It is impossible. John 14, 6, nobody goes to the Father except through the Son. There is no access to God but through Jesus. So any religion, any faith who says that they access God apart from Jesus is not accessing God. There are some people who suggest that we cave on some truths of the the Bible in order to foster an environment of unity. The text says nothing about that. Absolutely nothing. Unity should never be pursued at the expense of truth. Unity is not achieved by throwing out biblical truths and theology. You can claim to be spiritual and religious. You can claim to be generous and kind and nice and moral. But if you do not claim Jesus as your Savior, you are not united to the Father. Don't fool yourself and don't fool other people either. It is through Jesus we access the Father. Unity means that we believe the same things about Jesus that the Scripture tells us. We agree on what this says about Jesus, that he is God. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that we are all the same. It doesn't mean we all express those truths the same way. Some, Some like to pray standing up. Some like sitting down or walking around. Some people like hymns. Some people like contemporary music. Some people meet in theaters. Some people meet in a church with a steeple and pews. Some of us read our Bible chronologically. Some of us sit in a chapter for a month. 
The same way the Father is distinct from the Son and is distinct from the Holy Spirit, we're distinct from each other, and we will express those biblical truths differently. Nonetheless, we agree on the fundamental truths of Scripture. There is a unity of belief in God's kingdom. Now, Jesus is primarily concerned with our unity with the Trinity, but that doesn't mean that our unity is not visible. In fact, he says it is visible. Look at verse 21. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. The end of verse 21. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Look at verse 23 again. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. The so that the world may believe that you have sent me indicates that the unity is visible as well as spiritual. It's observable. The world can see it to some capacity. The world will see our unity in the Trinity and somehow come to believe that Jesus is in fact sent of the Father and is who he says he is. In other words, our very lives are witnesses to the gospel. As we share the good, uh, the good news, as we share the truth of the gospel as it comes out of our mouths, they should be confirmed by our living. The world is watching is what Jesus is saying. In other words, and you don't want there to be a dissonance between what you're saying and how you're living. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means you're being transformed. It means you're changing and you're becoming more like Christ. No man who meets Jesus, who abides in Jesus, goes there and leaves the same. not just our personal lives it's our interpersonal relationships as well in the church how we relate to each other in the church body matters the unity of the church is a form of evangelism how we relate to each other will cause the world to believe now the, the church is already one with god ephesians 4 paul says keep the unity of the spirit the unity already exists uh, it's created by the Spirit of God. Our responsibility is to maintain it and express it. Jesus revealed the unseen God, and now it's our job to reveal the Father to the world through Jesus. We do that by being united. In the Trinity and with each other. <clears throat> Attending church should be a counter-cultural experience for an unbeliever. They should walk into this place and find it bizarre that there is a love and respect between everybody here. The world makes distinction between people. But at church, every man and woman starts at the same point. We all have fallen short of the glory of God and are in desperate need of a Savior. 
So whether the relationships are between men and women, young and mature, whether it's new members and old ones, whether it's volunteers and paid staff, uh, leadership and members, whatever the dynamic is, the father's love for his son in all its richness is to be reproduced in our relationships. Everyone is valued in the body. Everyone is needed. Everyone has a purpose and everyone is cared for in the body of Christ. Every time we gather together, we either strengthen or weaken the gospel message. That's what Jesus is saying here. I'm just a spokesperson today. Because the gospel that I'm proclaiming this morning is either going to be confirmed or denied by you when you leave this room. The quality of our relationships are either going to approve or disapprove the gospel message preached this morning. The world wants to see who's greatest, but not here. Paul says to the Romans, we're to outdo each other in showing honor. Do you want to know what the biggest barriers to evangelism are? It's not lack of communication skills. <clears throat> it's not that we meet in a theater. It's not the quality of the coffee. The biggest barrier to evangelism is when we profess the good news, but then we deny it by our living. It's our hypocritical living that is the biggest impediment to the gospel spread. And one such area of difficulty is in our suffering. How we suffer matters. We all at some point will face adversity and trial and difficulties in life, whether it's death or sickness. <clears throat> How we handle it communicates to the world whether our God loves us or not. The world should observe us in our lowest moments and say, that man is loved by God. We bear each other's burdens. It's not just pious advice when Scripture tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. That is what the body is called to do, to carry each other. We are a community that believes that God is working everything for the good of those who love Him, for the good of those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. We see a lot of this living in the book of Acts. If you've been attending Centerview for a little while, you know that we've been in the book of Acts for quite a long time. We see Jesus' prayer being effective in the lives of the early church. True or false? The book of Luke <coughs> is the prequel to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, book of Luke covers all that Jesus did and taught. The book of Acts tells us all that he continued to do through the early church, starting at the ascension. We see Jews and Gentiles coming together for the first time in history, united in Christ. Peter, a Jew, shows up at a Roman soldier's house and he walks in. That's unheard of. We don't make much of it because, you know, we go into people's houses all the time. At that time, it was ludicrous to enter the house of a Gentile, let alone a Roman soldier. 
But in the book of Acts, we see Peter going in. Not only does he go in, but he baptizes the family into the family of God. Not only does he enter for a little while, but he stays there a couple days. I know I've said it before, but it's unheard of at that time. Can you imagine what non-believing Jews and Gentiles were thinking when they heard of this? It caused a stir in the church, never mind in the world. It was that shocking. What's going on? What unity is this? In Paul's letters, we see that the Gentile believers in Corinth and Galatia, they take up regular collections for the, the needy church in Jerusalem who are, who's composed of Jews. That level of care and unity shocks the world in the first century. That is unheard of. It's a supernatural unity. Uh, that unity is a tailwind to the gospel message. It's a boost in the spread of the gospel to the world. Because it confirms the message that the apostles are sharing in the first century. When they see that, when people see that and then they hear the message, they're like, oh, it's got to be true. That's impossible outside of that power that they're talking about. And it's no wonder that the church grows like wildfire from there. It's because of the distinct living of individuals and the collective, the body of Christ. Jesus doesn't just pray that we would abide in the Father. Verse 23, he says, I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one <clears throat> so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. God loves us. That's the other powerful truth that Jesus wants us to understand. The love that God has for Jesus is the same love that he loves us with. We are his bride. His love and affection for us is immense. And it's not because we're so lovable. In fact, we're not lovable at all. We are sinful and God is holy. We were enemies and distant from God. God's love for us isn't a result of our lovability. It's not because we're cuddly and cute. On the contrary, in Ephesians, Paul says that we were children of wrath by nature. God loves us because we abide in Jesus, because we are hidden in him, because we believe in Christ. God loves his own son, and because we're in him, he loves us with the same intensity. So if you're feeling unloved, know this, that God loves you at your most unlovable. God loved you from the foundations of the world, not because of what you did, not because you earned it, but because you are in Christ. When we read that God loves us in Jesus, it's not meant to draw us into ourselves and our greatness. It's not meant to make us feel special. It's meant to highlight the supreme and incomparable love of the Father. God loves us in such a way that he brings glory to himself. He loves us in such a way that it would lead us to praise him. The height of our joy, then, is that God went to extreme lengths to save us. Our God fights for us at Calvary to redeem us, to atone and forgive and justify and reconcile us. If you met Jesus face to face right now, you would not spend your time talking about how awesome and special you feel. 
you would spend every moment hanging out with Jesus saying, whoa, you are awesome. That would be our reaction. That's how we're meant to feel now. The love of the Father is meant to stir that reaction in us. I was watching a movie with the kids the other day. It's about two girls who were separated as babies. <clears throat> one goes to live with the mother, the other one goes to live with the father. And at a certain point in their lives, they meet by coincidence or by God's sovereignty if you want to be spiritual. They meet and they swap places because one wants to know the father that she's never known and the other one wants to know the mother that she's never known. And so they exchange places. The parents have no idea. One daughter goes with the father. The father comes to pick her up at the airport. And she looks at him. She's like, I've never seen my father before. And on the way home, she's in the car, and she keeps repeating the word dad over and over and over again, where the father looks over and says, you keep using the word dad. Is everything okay? She's like, yeah, I just, I, I, just, I missed you, dad. The love of the Father is meant to create that reaction in us. I missed you, Dad. We feel loved, and so we want to be with Dad. Jesus' love for us is so great that he wants us to be with him forever. Look at what verse 24 says. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. It wasn't enough that he saved us. It wasn't enough that every sheep should be taken from the jaw of the wolf. He wants the sheep in the same fold with him for eternity. In those final moments of his life, Jesus looks into the future and he anticipates the embrace of his bride, the church. He, does, and he doesn't just want us to be there. He doesn't just want us in heaven. He, want, he says, look, look at what he says. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, with me where I am. Not just where I am, but with me where I am. He doesn't just want us to be in heaven. He wants us to be in heaven with him. He says something similar in chapter 14, a couple chapters before this. He says, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. I will take you to myself. What makes heaven heaven is Jesus. Heaven without Jesus would be an empty place. It would lose its happiness. It would lose its joy. In fact, it would be hell. It would be a guitar with no strings, a beach with no ocean. And it's easy to get caught up in all the various descriptions of heaven and forget that at its core, it's the place where Jesus is. Heaven is, much, is as much a place as it is the, com as it is the company that is there. It's wherever Jesus is. It's being with him. Hell, on the contrary, 
is wherever he is not. It's eternal absence. It's an eternal absence of Jesus. All that is good and lovely, all of the things that we deem good and lovely, nothing exists in hell because goodness itself, Jesus Christ, is not there. And he shows us the end for which he longs, and that is our unity with him in glory in heaven forever. How often, how often do we think about heaven? How often do you anticipate it? David says in Psalm 1611, he says, in your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you believe that? Do you share David's anticipation of being with God? Paul says something similar. He says, I am hard-pressed between the two. Uh, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul wants to be with Jesus. And notice that Paul in Philippians, he doesn't say, I, I long for heaven. He says, I, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. And the only reason he doesn't do it is because he has to finish faithfully executing the mission. There is a tension within him. He desires to, Jesus, to see Jesus' glory in full, but there's still a mission to accomplish. Does that tension exist between us? Are we torn between heaven and here? Are we torn between being with Christ and here? See, we live with the lens so often that supremely values the things of earth, and so it's hard to anticipate being with Jesus because we have such a limited understanding and view of the pleasure that exists in Jesus. In fact, I've heard people say that they're not super excited about heaven because it sounds boring. And I hear you, the choirs all the time, like I'm not a big fan of choirs, and so it's not particularly the best image of heaven for me, so I sort of understand them. But when you think that Jesus is there, that should create a great longing and anticipation in us. Jesus wants us to be with him, and he continues, he says, I want them to be with me, and I want them to experience my glory. Verse 24 Father, I desire, again, read verse 24 again. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. We, we see God's glory reflected in Jesus on earth, so much so that there's a, a, a Roman soldier at the cross, and when Jesus dies, we read in Luke that he praises God. The, the first century disciples... Uh, They experienced some of that glory, not in full, but partly walking with Jesus, seeing the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension. But one day what Jesus is talking about, he prays that we would experience it in full with him. And and that's the whole purpose of salvation. It kind of sums up, it climaxes right there that we would be with him. Why? To see his glory, to experience his glory to see Jesus clothed in glory, close up to witness it with our own eyes, the love of the Father for the Son. But there's, it's even better than that. In, in verse 22, 
Jesus says that he gives us the glory that the Father has given to him so that we might be one with him. Not only do we see it, we experience it. We will see Jesus in the fullness of his glory one day and it will be joyful and pleasurable for us. We're not passive observers, but we get to experience that. Because we abide in him, we will know, we will be there and experience it. It will be the most radiant and overwhelming love we've ever experienced. We will feel a depth of companionship that we have never felt before. A depth of friendship and acceptance and purpose and accomplished mission that we have never felt before. God's glory is good news for us who are in Christ. That Jesus shares his glory with us is good news for us who are in Christ. He doesn't share it with us begrudgingly. He deeply desires to have us with him. And he prays that. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the glimpse that we have in chapter 17 of John. Thank you for the glimpse that we have in what Jesus is doing for us even now. Thank you that we get to see a little bit of how you intercede and pray on our behalf for those who abide in you and love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, God, that you have changed and transformed our heart by the power of the Holy Spirit to see the glory of Jesus Christ, to follow him, to give him our lives. I pray, Jesus, that we would anticipate being with you one day, Father. That you would create this longing and desire to sing, come, Lord Jesus, come. Even now, Father, as we look forward to Christmas and we celebrate you coming as a baby, I pray that we would remember and continue to sing, joy to the world, the Savior is come and coming again. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, again to save us and redeem us and bring us back home with you. We pray, Lord Jesus, give us tender hearts that love you, that love your church and your body. Oh God, we want to be with you and desire to be with you, but also give us a love and a sense of purpose and mission to accomplish your purposes here on earth. Help us to preach and teach and pray and plant churches that many more would come to salvation and be with you and experience your glory, God. We pray, amen.